0: Good day, everyone, and welcome back to Sapiens Playground. Today, I had great pleasure to talk to the creator of Physionic. Maybe you had the chance to listen to his YouTube channel and to get familiar with, you know, some interesting information on cell and molecular physiology and some biochemistry. So today, I had the chance to speak to Nicholas Verhoven if sorry if i mispronounced your name um so nicholas is the creator of physionics he's doctorate student in molecular medicine uh, or cell and molecular physiology and has been a cell and molecular biology researcher for six years Uh, he has a master in exercise physiology and is an acsm certified personal trainer according to nick's website he's the owner and operator of physionic Nick created Physionic because he needed an outlet to share his giddy excitement, learning the human body from the macro to the micro. And so that's basically also what we've been talking about today a lot, especially with respect to diabetes and fatty liver disease, since that's been a huge interest of mine for a very long time because it's a disease of great significance in our society. Nick is obsessed with learning everything related to human physiology and nutrition and dive into the details, not only answering basic questions, but also the mechanisms. And that's why it was very interesting for me to talk to him, because we managed to dive into some of these uh, mechanisms. Nick encourages discussion, and that's what you can also hear today. We discussed fatty liver back and forth. We discussed Pufus back and forth. And he also asked me, interestingly enough, he asked me some questions. ...on my podcast and my views on nutrition, which I truly appreciated. Uh, Nick's plans are numerous and detailed, but ultimately he wants to bring, br- bring clarity... ...to understanding the human body to anyone wanting a quality university-level education with added transparency. I truly appreciated his perspective. Nick is a very nice guy and you will hear that in our conversation... ...that his perspective is nuanced and well formulated and articulated... And that he admits if there's something he doesn't know or hasn't done enough research about. Because many topics in nutrition and health and biochemistry are really complicated. And um, yeah, the humility really struck me as very uh, genuine. So enjoy listening to the episode. And here is Nick from Physionic. Let's go. So, hey, but it's super yeah, cool that sure. we that we get the chance to to have a chat.
1: Yeah, I'm, I've I've been excited to to do this. Uh, I get asked from from time to time to do uh, to do podcasts, and whatnot. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm I'm really glad that I was able to do this. Perfect. My okay.
0: understanding is uh, yep.
1: you're you're from Germany, right?
0: Right, and my understanding is that you have a um, a last name that sounds like f- it it might be from Holland.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely Dutch, but my mother is Deutsch. Oh also, wow! Kind uh, of ein Deutsch. Krass.
0: Die Mutter ist Deutsch. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's cool. I, it, it was cool. It was cool to, to to see that you're from Germany. It's yes. It's uh, it's it's nice to meet people from from uh, all over the world. Yeah, all over the world, but especially from Germany. I think so. Especially from Germany.
0: Mm? Why why is yeah, that especially definitely. interesting to meet people from Germany? well um, my mom's German and yes.
1: uh, I have strong family ties to Germany we we used to go back uh, once or twice a year to, mm. to visit family and whatnot so um, yeah
0: it's always great is there like anything you particularly enjoy about Germany German culture oh oh absolutely um,
1: so much actually so so my mom's from uh like the Baden Württemberg area, uh-huh. the, um, like she's, she was from just outside Karlsruhe. And I think what I appreciated was the directness, but then also the kindness. And I think also in terms of a cultural aspect, I think the, the relationship to food, I think that's probably more of a European thing in general, but like mm. actually going to the bakery, going to, uh, get the the fresh meats like every morning things of that nature i i think that's something that i i I don't think you'd find that anywhere in the united states Mm. so i think it's something that i i I deeply appreciate about about germany absolutely yeah
0: yeah interesting i've never been to the united states so i can i cannot really contrast the 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 life the way i live it here Mm. to how it would have otherwise been in in the united states Uh, my girlfriend is from the us though and we're going to visit the us very soon so that's interesting. Cool. But so far I have like the, on, the only uh, the only let's say like contact I had with with the United States was through podcasting, through people that I that I've talked to, listening to a bunch of podcasts and stuff like this. But I can imagine that it's like vastly different from from German culture and everything else we do here.
1: It in certain respects it really is. Uh, it I think it's kind of subtle, but uh, mm-hmm. once you're kind of immersed into it, you really start to realize that there are some distinct differences that I deeply appreciate about Germany, um, and I, I do think mm. one of those areas is being, uh, yeah, this kind of straightforward nature that I really right. appreciate about about Germany. Um, I I just feel more at peace I think in general in, yeah, think in so. Germany. Mm. Yeah, interesting. But uh, I'm actually curious uh, what what made you start. This uh, this podcast. I mean, it's a great idea, but I'm I'm curious what your yeah. what your initial
0: motivation was. Like, look, man, um, actually, actually started by me getting invited to a show from a oh, yeah. from a fellow um, Australian guy. Uh, his I don't, I think he's not as active anymore with his podcasting, but back then he was like doing podcasts, and he wasn't really that popular let's say not many people knew about him just as not many okay. people really know about me so I'm just doing this bas- basically more or less I don't want to say just for fun but I do derive a lot of benefit from for myself and my yeah. idea always was well I tend to have really interesting conversations with people and oftentimes I think man just imagine what how interesting it would be if we would just if we would just have recorded this conversation and put it online because it was so fascinating what a what yeah. a shame that we didn't get the chance to record it. And I had these moments many many times. And then uh, throughout my health journey, I was listening to podcasts like nonstop. You know, it was it was crazy. I was doing I would do I was doing it all the time. Whenever I would do something that would allow me to listen to podcasts simultaneously without without getting too distracted and stuff. And then when I was on the show from this Australian dude, he basically. Mm told me how he got started and his idea was he was also just like me consuming content non-stop and at one point he thought well how about instead of consuming all the time you would just you know just put out some content produce some content and see how see how that works and I thought well that's an interesting thought how about like why not why not just try and see what happens and now I can say it was a really good decision because just talking to people is so so absolutely interesting you know and In the beginning, I was like getting prepared to the podcast, making notes, and I don't know, writing down some questions. But now, I don't do any of that. I just start the conversation, see how it goes, and try to respond, um, you know, appropriately, and be curious, ask the right questions, etc. And like, personally, I find the conversations very, very, very interesting that I have with people, on all kinds of issues. So I find it Beneficial for myself, and then the idea is, well, I could just put it up online, and maybe someone else could listen to it and also find it helpful. Mm. So, your
1: your podcast covers a lot of different topics. Yes, uh, from my understanding, because I've I've listened to a few of your other episodes. Oh, really? Well. Um, yeah, of course.
0: <laughs> ha, that's that's cool um, to hear. Which so one I, I
1: listen I listened to one uh, where you, it was a really recent one where you talked about uh, philosophy and psychology and things of that nature. Yeah, so and that that's that's yeah. kind of what struck me is, is that uh, you didn't you don't just cover uh, I don't know I, I don't want to call it science but you you cover a breadth of different perspectives yes and uh, I thought I thought that was really interesting
0: Also also usually, my, usually... my my podcast name reflects that um, um, idea you know like I don't call it I don't know you know all these podcast hosts that call their podcast that that automatically, attach their podcast to some sort of like ideological, ideological niche, let's say. So you have like mm. low carb this, that's my podcast. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. obviously, there's nothing else they would talk about other than low carbohydrate diets and how they heal the world. Or like vegan this, that's what right. my content is all about. And I just want it to be a place where I can talk to everyone. And so that's why I call it playground. Because there's like no battle, no fight. It's just we explore, we have no idea, you're ignorant, I'm ignorant. We just try to figure things out. And then sapiens, because... Mm. I don't. I don't exclude anyone. Everyone who who wants to talk, you know, I'll be glad to invite this person. Yeah. So yeah. I definitely
1: appreciate. It. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I can I can see why. I mean, I think I think it also takes a, a special type of person to to be willing to have those engagements, to have those discussions. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily for for everyone, you know. Um, no. But
0: sure. Well, you have to have you have to have the right personality, obviously, to be able to do podcasts like this. You have to be like open enough to be willing to expose yourself to a broad range of opinions and viewpoints. So that has to be one thing. although obviously you right. can you can create your own bubble where you only talk to guests that support your opinion. But like me, for example, or very, very successful podcasters like Joe Rogan, let's say, He's talking Mm. to literally everyone about literally everything. That's why everyone loves him, you know, and why he's the most successful podcaster in the world. And Mm. then also you you have to be at least somewhat extroverted. You have to be able to talk. You have to like to talk at least to some degree. If you're like full-blown introverted, 100%, (laughs) there's no chance you'll ever start a podcast, you know. At least like obviously there are some people like, are you familiar with Lex Friedman? Friedman?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: I think he calls himself more an introverted guy and also the way he, he does these podcasts, he has a very, very calm voice and he doesn't mm. like, he, he's not as enthousi- enthusiastic about everything he talks about. So you, you can, you, you obviously there is the possibility of doing podcasts while being more on the introverted side, but you have to have somewhat the right personality to, to yeah, to... Um, be what successful with this endeavor
1: yeah yeah i agree i think another uh another principle is uh, the ability to to listen i think a lot of people don't 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 have personality it's not like you have a a particular trait in a personality and then uh, everybody should aim for that one type of personality but i think that uh when it comes to podcasting, I do think the extroversion is a huge part. I think that mm-hmm. for sure you have to be able to think on your feet, especially if you do a format like you, where you don't necessarily script things out and you just kind of go with the flow of the conversation. Mm-hmm. You have to be quick on your feet. So there's some extroversion related to that. Mm-hmm. But then the ability to, to listen is another one um, because – you want to hear what the other person has to say as well. So yeah, Yeah. I I think, I think just being generally a great conversationalist, if you get that kind of feedback from people, I think that's, that's a great sign that you could probably start a, a decent podcast.
0: Yes. Well, you're right. And the whole being able to listen to the other person, that's something that I, um, started, like the skill of being able to do that is something that I start to appreciate um, more and more over the past couple of years, let's say. And I Mm -hmm. think podcasting is a great tool to be able to practice that to optimize the skill, right? Because nothing depends on that. I just do this for fun and I can get better and better at Mm -hmm. listening to different kinds of people, especially, and I actually like, I also like inviting people that I don't necessarily agree with. That's really interesting. Cause then first of all, we can find common ground. And I think that's more important than arguing about the differences, right? Like I recently had, um, personally, like, look, I recently had a vegan cardiologist on, Dr. Joel Kahn. You may may be familiar with him. No. Uh, He's very, he's actually popular, you know, in the whole nutrition world. And I personally, I'm more, well, I wouldn't say I'm completely opposed to veganism, but I'm definitely very critical with respect to veganism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm I'm more on the side that including animal foods in your diet in liberal amounts is a very beneficial thing. And so I still wanted to have him on for other reasons. And it was very interesting because we didn't really argue about the the details of what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat at all. Not really. Like the, the things we discussed were related to things we could agree with in the health space and that we all should agree with that are pretty much unambiguously accepted as very beneficial for your health. We talked about mm. sleep, we talked about exercise, we talked about um, protein intake. And so there you can see people agree on a lot of things. Well, if you actually listen to a person, um, you, 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 oftentimes I find out, well, I thought I would disagree with this person on a bunch of topics. But in the end, I find out, I also had, had this personally with friends and family and, and all that, that in the end, I come to the conclusion that Basically there's a lot of things we agree on. And that's so cool because oftentimes you don't go deep enough to understand if you have a conversation or an argument or a dispute, let's even let's say, then it becomes so emotional and you focus on the small differences that you know, that one of these differences had actually triggered the dispute in the first place, and then you keep focusing on those instead of um instead of you know Elaborating on, look, these are actually all the things that we can agree on and that's great because that means mm. we share values. That means we can actually live together, let's say, or have a good time together. And there, maybe even these differences don't even matter at all, like if it's just opinion-based. So that's also what I, what I learned from doing these podcasts.
1: Yeah, I think that's incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you brought up a great point about the fact that people harp or focus in on these little differences between mm. one another because i i think that people get caught up in that friction that gets created the fact that oh well, wait and suddenly we don't agree on something it's like you oh, yeah people try to bridge that that slight difference in in opinion and it becomes very personal it's like well, but i i want you have to see it the way that i see it and that then to your point people get extremely emotional and then they get lost in the argument it's not it's not about the overall ideas. It's not about, well, I can have a different opinion from yours. Uh, it's it's more about I need to convince you hmm. that I'm right. Or I guess technically it's it, from the other side, it would be the other person trying to convince you that they're right. But hmm. um, yeah, it, I think I think it takes a certain level of introspection to be able to walk into a conversation like that. And then realize, okay, we're we're definitely not going to get to an agreement on this. Mm-hmm. So let's just kind of shake hands and move on to something else that we do agree on, or just shake hands and leave the conversation. Yes. Just uh, say, hey, look, I, I disagree with you, but mm-hmm. you know that's fine. And obviously, for certain topics that they are incredibly emotional, and it's it's you can't divorce the 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 emotion from the the conversation. And uh, those those are certainly hot hot button topics. But um, overall, for most conversations, I think a lot of people can can really benefit from just taking a step back and mm. trying to, to just within themselves to force the, the emotion from from the topic itself.
0: Yes, I agree. And I was all, like, also asked this many guests that I've talked to, because that's a very interesting question. Question for me also from a, like psychological perspective, also just from a technical perspective, why is it that certain topics elicit this? Um, you know insane uh, emotional reactions while others like people don't seem to care about it at all like look even let's say we have a difference in what is our favorite your favorite color and versus my favorite color like i don't mm. i don't care if you like black more than i do or if if you if i like red more than you do like this is not something anyone would really get emotional about obviously maybe there are some people that would argue whatever generally speaking people don't care and they don't mind if people have different preferences as far as like favorite color is concerned. But if we take nutrition as an example, that's like (laughs) the most insane battlefield on Twitter ever. (laughs) Like it's crazy. Mm -hmm. And I I think the reason why certain topics, why people are more keen on like arguing tiny differences, or maybe becoming so emotional when discussing certain topics, let's say r- related to health or nutrition, I think the reason for that is that ultimately it matters more personally on all kinds of different levels. Because it, it, it's not it's not something that has no influence on your health or life or anything, you know, because let's say we have a difference in which color we prefer. It doesn't really matter for anything. But if I think something is more optimal for you for your health than what you propose then obviously I believe your approach is gonna lead to worse health let's say and I believe my approach is superior to yours if it comes to optimizing health and ultimately what we share that's a nice thing to realize we both want to optimize health and so we are looking for different paths different approaches and that's something that everyone could come to an agreement to, to say, look, at least we agree on the goal. Like, isn't that a good thing? We agree where we're heading. And then we can say, well, let's now examine different approaches, how we can get there. And the interesting thing is, they might be different for everyone, and they probably are.
1: Yeah, absolutely, they are. I think it's it's an interesting strategic intellectual exercise to try to get to that point. But you also, I mean, you have to have the time, you have to have the mental space Mm -hmm. for it. You have to have your psychology has to be in the right spot. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that have to kind of be in, in perfect order to for, for you to have those conversations. And of course it's a two party system and that's, or multiple parties sometimes. So Everybody has to have that, that mentality. But I'm actually curious uh, for mm. you, what do you think in terms of health, just general health, what do you think are a few of the fundamental things that you think are absolutely important?
0: So you're interviewing me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, um, over my years of, I don't want to say research because I'm not a scientist, I'm a med student and I've been interested in health forever. But, over the years that I've been interested and talked to people and listened to all kinds of different podcasts and have looked at, you know, different dietary camps. so i've 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 been everywhere. I haven't tried everything um, for some reason. So I've never been vegan, let's say. I've never been vegetarian. I've never been like keto or anything. but i've I've been convinced that one thing is better than the other, many, many times. And I've changed my mind many, many times. And I've arrived somewhere that, in a, in a place where i can see all these different approaches and can um what would you say i can i can take the best of all worlds and 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 try and try to make sense of everything and also appreciate yeah. the fact that all of these dietary approaches let's say you can make the same argument for exercise for supplements are tools that you can use to for to individualize your approach of treating a patient, let's say. Because that's inter- that's interesting for me as a future doctor, right? So I want to provide the best possible uh, treatment and help for my patients. And so I have to appreciate the fact that they are different. And it's great if I have this toolbox with different tools, call them dietary approaches or different types of exercise, different types of therapy that I could use, supplements, everything, and drugs, like all, all of that all of that wide array of different tools that I could use to optimally treat my patient. And so as far as diet though is concerned, I think there are some principles that you can list which, which are which, which not, I think which are not just helpful to um, follow, but I think if you don't follow them, then you'll definitely run into problems sooner or later. I think one thing that everyone agrees on is the processed food thing. Although, caveat: listening to Lane Norton. I'm familiar with Dr. Lane Norton.
1: Very, yeah. You know,
0: the more I listen to him, the more I love this guy. You know, <laughs> especially his nuanced approach to um, diets. Many people believe he he doesn't he doesn't present accurate information because he what would you say? He argues for the validity of flexible dieting. And I mm-hmm. see his point, like having listened to a lot of his content, I see his point that um, religiously restricting a certain food group or a, a great, a large part of your diet can trigger binge eating for many people. So if you become a little more flexible, with your approach and allow yourself from time to time, you know, allow some treats from time to time, I think you won't do yourself any harm on the long run. Still, it's, it's probably a good idea to suggest people to reduce their processed food intake. I think there is nothing really beneficial about it. So that's mm-hmm. looking from this lens, what's actually beneficial for your body. And then, then I thought, then I've been familiarizing myself a lot with the work of Weston Price. And I really like the word, work of Weston Price because I. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Dr. Weston A. Price? No, I'm not. D- Dr. Weston A. Price was a researcher and dentist in the 30s and 40s. So he has um, visited many different tribes and all, all over the world. And so he's, he's been traveling the world and visiting the tribes. And he was actually interested in, um, in dental health. So he was he was curious why dental health is deterioro- deteriorating in the in western societies although like treatment is getting more sophisticated and all of that and so he he was interesting if he could find better dental health among these indigenous tribes and you know he actually did and so he examined he, he examined their mouths he examined their teeth and he wrote a book that's called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And his conclusion was actually... And the interesting thing was he didn't look at Western people compared to indigenous, uh, like these indigenous tribes. It wasn't it wasn't just tribes, by the way. It was hunter-gatherers. It was farmers. They were just living their traditional lifestyle. Mm. Um, he was comparing those people in this in these tribes, comparing them to people from the same tribe that have left the tribe and now live in the civilization to kind of make sure that genetics aren't influencing the results. Because, like, if you have a striking difference, that's definitely not to genetics because it doesn't change in one generation. Um, And the conclusion was, as soon as they transition away from their traditional lifestyle, you know, dental health deteriorates. And it was... All across all societies and um, tribes, so that was very hmm. interesting. Another thing that he realized was there was no vegetarian tribe. There was no, um, there was like no group, no tribe that was eating a vegetarian lifestyle or a yeah. vegan lifestyle. I'm, I th- like definitely not, definitely not vegan. There were there were tribes that were relying more on dairy, less on meat, but still like everyone was consuming liberal amounts of animal products. And that's where I came um, came to derive the conclusion that I think it's very beneficial to include at least some amount of animal products because they're very, very, very um, nutrient dense and it's the most mm-hmm. bioavailable protein, let's say. You have bioavail- more bioavailable minerals and vitamins. And so I believe it's very beneficial to include them. How much you include of animal products in your diet, I think that's up to personal preference. Some people, like me, they prefer more animal products, a little less plants. Although I do like plants, I eat like everything. I do eat everything. I'm not, I'm not animal-based carnivore. I actually don't like these names because they make me uh, feel as if I like belong to a certain group and I have to agree with everything these people say, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, that's yeah. a long, a long um, way to say, number one, I think excluding processed food as much as possible is very beneficial. Number two, including high-protein animal foods is very beneficial. And then number three, fill your diet with everything that you, else that you tolerate from the plant kingdom. Because some people, you know, they have like nut allergies and stuff like this. So obviously you won't eat those foods. But I, I guess that would cover, you know, the what, what, what I believe to be the most beneficial things that you should... Uh, have an eye on and then the rest is up to personal preference and also um, for certain people certain types of diets might be extremely beneficial for certain neurological conditions ketogenic diets seem to be you know doing wonders and i don't know that's yeah
1: yeah uh, those are those are three great ones i completely agree definitely um i think also your point about people being really ideological about their diets where they subscribe to mm-hmm. low carb or they subscribe to high carb or veganism or carnivore, you know, yes. whatever it might be. I've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, to me it's i I, I, I end up incredulous, absolutely incredulous <laughs> when people follow these people that are low carb this, like that's their name. It's their name. At it's their Instagram Asian. handle. Yeah. Yeah, they are screaming their bias at Mm. you, like, hey, by the way, if you come talk to me, I will only tell you what, like, within this scope Mm -hmm. of what I believe. And if it's anything outside of that scope, you can almost be guaranteed I'm going to bash it. I'm going to say only negative things about it. And that, I mean, that blows my mind because I, I just can't imagine going to a person like that and actually getting a unbiased or as unbiased as possible of a of a response of 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 how to live your life and i mean granted if you have decided preemptively a priori that you are going to be i'm only going to eat low carb and therefore i'm going to follow this low carb person that's fine but ultimately you're just creating Mm. this echo chamber of we all agree with one another low carb is the best for everything. Yes. Um, and you're not going to be exposed to literature that might say low carb is horrible for this or horrible for that. Um, mm. So nuance is incredibly important. So what you're doing right with these conversations and and kind of getting information from a number of different sources, especially for example, like the vegan cardiologist mm. um, is is a great way to go. i I, I mean, I, I always uh, believe in in trying to expose yourself as much as you can to to different things and with the mentality of at the very beginning of our conversation about mm. having that open mind to the point where, okay, here's where I, I'm coming from, where are you coming from let's try to bridge this gap and maybe there is no bridge between, you know, this gap, but at least we can make it closer and I, I can gain something from it. You can gain something from it and yes. and step away uh, with a with a more complete holistic understanding of, of health.
0: Yes. And I think talking about it is very beneficial because then at least you can understand where the other person is coming from. You right. can bridge the gap by becoming a little more empathetic in that sense, becoming more under, uh, understanding of the position of your of your, of the person you're talking to. And I think that's extremely mm-hmm. beneficial, extremely important also when it comes to just, you know, relationships in general. Cause like mm. if we have just a very technical conversations or a vegan argues for the, with a, a carnivore, it doesn't like, I don't know if they're so curious about understanding what the other person is coming from or just convincing them that they're right versus, you know, or vice versa. Uh, but uh, if if it comes to like you talking to a friend or in intimate relationships i i think again th- you don't necessarily have to convince them of anything you don't even have to end up at this at the same op- with the same opinion i think what's way more crucial is that you are able to understand the position of the other person cuz then that means that this whole you know the whole in- the, the anxiety is gone cuz the idea is if if you if you encounter um if you encounter something that completely blows away the foundation of your entire belief system let's say then you're like oh my gosh what is this all about and then the other person automatically seems like an enemy and as you said you can bridge this gap by saying okay look i see your point you see my point and it and now we can now we can like talk and then we can see if if the difference matters and sometimes it does for example in personality if large differences can like manifest themselves in, in, in difficulty to understand the other person. So say you're an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I don't know. Are you an introvert? <laughs> uh, I would say
1: I originally was more of an introvert, <laughs> but since I became a lot more publicly yeah. oriented, I think I'm kind of uh, in the middle.
0: Okay. But just for, for the sake of this thought experiment, you're very introverted. I'm like very extroverted. Let's just, let's just pretend that, um, I'm going to shut down now. Oh, are we back?
1: Oh, no, no, no. I was saying I'm going to shut down now. Uh, I can't talk anymore because I'm so introverted. (laughs) No, no, okay.
0: (laughs) Okay, but for this thought experiment, I'm the one who's like 100th percentile, your first percentile. So um, the the problem that comes up is you have no idea why I act the way I act because you can't Mm -hmm. wrap your head around how it's possible to communicate with people nonstop. You talk to someone for two minutes, and you're like, you know, you're done. You're empty. There's nothing left. And w- vice versa. I will never be able to understand how you're possibly able to sit around days and days in a row, weeks, not seeing anyone, not talking to anyone, not speaking the entire for the entire day. So mm-hmm. these people will never be able to sustain a long-term relationship with each other because they, they won't be able to understand why the person... behaves the way the person behaves but let's say we have a slight difference like i'm a little more extroverted than you let's say then i don't necessarily have to become as introverted as you are neither have you to become as extroverted as i have as i am Mm -hmm. but at least my scope of you know empathy is broad enough to encompass your state of extroversion and to understand well sometimes people like to be alone and you will understand well sometimes people like going out and talking to to other people and spending time socializing and so be able to understand that without necessarily necessarily having to to act it out and so that i think i think it's, it's it's very easy maybe to understand that with respect to personality and relationships but if you like try to apply the same idea to different kinds of topics it's relieving. Because then you can say, if it's really crucial, we have to sort it out. But if it's not crucial, we can just say, well, at least we understand each other's positions. And let's just leave it at that.
1: Yeah. Um, I've always, I've actually never said this, but I've always thought this mm-hmm. um, in in that vein of, I think I'd be really horrible at debates. Uh, mm. Because of that mentality what you're describing is is essential is is trying to i mean we're we're continuously discussing this kind of like bridging the gap between uh two viewpoints or two identities in in the situation you're describing and i Mm. think that with uh with debate you Mm -hmm. have to come in with this like this is my stance here's the evidence i have or the 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 intellectual know-how that I have, and then you're going to come in with your stance of this is, you know, mm. what you believe, and you have your intellectual know-how, but it it it, it it's it's a battleground. I mean, that's yes. what a debate is. It's it's an intellectual battleground going it's back battleground. and forth. So someone
0: has to win.
1: in a manner of speaking, yeah, and I I think that for me, I would maybe have my original stance. I would have my evidence. I would come in and the problem is that the moment somebody has a good point, mm-hmm. my intuition, because I'm trying to get to some level of truth and yeah. not I, because I, you know, as a scientist or just in general in science, you you, you you are always open. You try to keep yourself open to a new perspective of how to look at the data. Because you're pursuing to... truth, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. That's the reason. So,
0: you, you want to figure yes. out how the world is built and how, how to navigate it.
1: Exactly. So if you end up in a situation where you offer your original point, okay, I start out, I say, I believe this, I believe veganism Mm -hmm. is correct for X, Y, and Z reason. The other person says, I believe carnivore is better for X, Y, Z reason. And we start exchanging information back and forth. The problem is that I would be like oh that's a good point you know like in in, in this regard i agree with you and in this re- and suddenly the debate just kind of devolves into more of a discussion yes where i it, it kind of like what you were describing of like oh now i've learned this and now i've learned this and it's <clears throat> so so this brings me to this point mm-hmm. of I, I wanted to ask you about this because your your mentality is very much about uh again i'm just i keep using this analogy of bridging yep. the gap Yep. um do you think that that hamstrings for example like uh your social media presence or your your podcast growth because i have found that unless i'm incredibly controversial where i stick to my guns and i say this is the correct path hmm. and then i pull this this group of people that also believe in this thing hmm. the problem is once you start pulling that audience you can't deviate because yeah. because those people will turn on you or they'll They'll start to. There's more dissent th- uh, across the ranks, mm. um, so so being that more flexible person mm. that's that's like I will consider other perspectives is I think in terms of the social media age mm. of of trying to go viral and whatnot. I don't think that it's. I mean, you tell me your opinion, but mm. I don't think it's that conducive for actual growth.
0: No, it's even actually no. It I agree.
1: Yeah, even though I do think it is fantastic for. Mm as a quality person as a growth mm-hmm. as a as a mm-hmm. person it's it's extremely valuable but in terms of growth on social media i don't think it's that conducive but not do you, in do the you short term look not in the okay. short term
0: and uh, it, it's like an exercise you know i could mm-hmm. i could go really insane and focus on one thing only and um, neglect everything else and i could get great results in that one thing and become the best but also an exercise, I take a broader approach. I want to develop in a more holistic manner. And so if, if you look at social media and podcasting, you're, you're absolutely right. My podcast hasn't really been growing that much. And, 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 and certain, to, to, to a certain degree, I don't care because I personally find this, these conversations interesting. And if there are like 20, 30 people listening and they like it, like, you know, more power to yeah. them and more power to me. So it's like good for everyone even if it's just Mm -hmm. 30 people. But I think in the long term, people do appreciate it more. I mean, the most successful podcasters have three-hour conversations going back and forth, inviting all different kinds of people, calling Mm -hmm. their podcast. um, The the, the title of the podcast is Their Name, not Low Carb Something and this. It's lex friedman podcast joe rogan experience jordan peterson podcast and so it's them it's them talking to others discussing going back and forth pursuing the truth like you you can really feel that uh i don't know how often you listen to joe rogan podcast um i personally try to but they're like so long it takes me like a week to get through one podcast but um I, i really enjoy it so much even if i hear the guest or Joe Rogan saying something that I would phrase differently or that I don't necessarily agree with. I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't care. He's a great guy. He, 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 (laughs) he tries to pursue the truth. You know, he tries to figure Mm -hmm. out, he tries to find common ground with the guest and he's actually critical. He asks critical questions. He's not afraid of asking them, even though he's being like pushed by, by the media pushed. Um, no, what, what would you say? He's being pinnacled by the media. Um, and he's being, um presented as some for some type of conspiracy theorist and this and that and I mean in the end he's genuinely trying to have great conversations and finding out what's what we can agree on and what's what's the most reasonable what's a reasonable approach to go about like solving all these problems that befall society right. so I believe I believe if, like I personally for now I don't focus that much on my podcast growth curl because I still have medical school and different things that I um, I'm, I'm focusing on but I mm-hmm. think still this approach will um, is, is, is more beneficial in the long run and it's of higher quality as you as you pointed out it's it's better for Much these higher. 30 people so I I'm, I'm, I'm more happy to to uh, to share greater quality content to like 30 people than ideological crap to a thousand
1: absolutely uh- I second that mm. wholeheartedly. Yeah, I've been I've been working on Physionic for 8 years straight. Um, and T- Tell me how I, it
0: started. Okay, so now it's my time finally to ask a question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you are you're you're a scientist. You're you call yourself Physionic or your pod, your podcast, your YouTube um you call it Physionic. Mm. Tell the story behind it. Behind how you came to um, to appreciate science, to become a scientist and to you know, build this channel,
1: yeah, sure. Um, so I, I originally went to to school for psychology and um, and took a lot of philosophy classes. Nice. So I was really interested in in that area. Um, but then i I was really into weightlifting and got mm. uh, so I was really skinny. I was this uh, one hundred and ninety eight centimeters six six guy that was. <laughs> just uh, really, really skinny. So I started lifting weights. And um, during college, as I was working on my psychology degree, and then I finished my psychology degree. And then I realized I just didn't want to do psychology, which was the worst timing, because you spend four years of your life learning about psychology, and then you end up deciding you don't want to do it.
0: What made you decide that you don't want to do it anymore? Yeah, the, the reason why was because
1: I was spending all my time researching how the body works um, so that I could become better at lifting weights and growing muscle uh-huh. and, and, and getting stronger. So then that was kind of a light bulb moment for me to to then realize, well, I shouldn't be pursuing psych. I'd, I'm not spending any of my free time on psychology, but mm. I'm spending all my free time learning about how the body works. Mm. So I decided to go back to school and uh, pursued exercise physiology and nutrition science and um then eventually got into a master's program for exercise physiology and it was during that time during that transition from psychology to uh physiology and nutrition that i started physionic because i i you know as a matter of fact very close to your mentality of like Mm. i was thinking well hey i i'm already doing this for myself i'm writing down notes i'm writing articles i'm I'm creating videos, so I might as well just publish them and just release them to the public. And um, that's what I started doing, and it was incredibly inefficient, but I Mm. still did it every week. Um, I would drive an hour and a half back home because I had the supercomputer at at home um, where I could actually edit my videos. So, And then I stuck to the schedule of one video every week uh, perpetually. And then I finished my my master's program and then I decided, well, I didn't want to pigeonhole myself to just exercise Mm. um, because I'm fascinated by medicine and cell biology and all Mm. these different aspects of physiology. So I I made a promise to myself that for my Ph.D. I was going to go for molecular medicine. So to specifically cover um, the whole body so that I could because once I graduate in a similar situation with you for, Mm. for medicine is that. Um, there is a certain level of authority that comes from having a degree in a broad field. And then you can specialize, of course, from there. But it's much more difficult to go from a narrow field and try to have authority into a broad field. Oh, absolutely. I'm um, I i would. I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, but I would <laughs> say chiropractors, many chiropractors, uh, have this real specialty, which they're really great at doing that, but then they broaden into a, a, a field that they have they have no training in how to assess the literature or they have no mm. training on how to interpret results and whatnot. And then they start giving dispensing advice, and they're mm. just they're not qualified. Mm, um, mm. And I, I think that's where formal education is incredibly important. Mm. But that said, Physionic grew from this kind of project that I just wanted to throw out content to something where, I have this new goal of i want to take medical literature and make it understandable for the public without dumbing it down too much because i think that's an area we have tons of pop science channels like tons of people that are like the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell you know (laughs) and you see these graphics of like atp or energy and there's nothing wrong with that i have no problem with that it's just it doesn't make me happy i i love reading the intricacies of exactly well, how does the mitochondria do that? You know, yeah, how does it yeah, move exactly. molecules within itself to actually do that? And yeah, these nebulous the we-
0: terms, these nice things that people throw around, they they don't satisfy me at all. It's like, yeah, I'm way more and and that 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 is with 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 respect to literally like everything that I hear uh, when it comes to health. Or if if it's not technical enough, I'm like, oh, you know, screw yeah. it, not interesting enough. <laughs> no,
1: I. I feel the same way. And I, to be honest, I mean, this is a fault of mine, but I, I think that sometimes I wonder if the person even knows the answer. Yeah. Uh, if if I were to ask them just one layer deeper, well, how does that happen? Hmm. I, I feel like they just have a blank expression, like sure. they wouldn't be able to explain what happens because it takes a massive amount of effort to read through the literature. And, and of course, uh, that's where that formal education comes in because... You get trained in like, OK, look at these variables, understand these experiments, know how to uh, diagnose the statistics and all those kinds of, of things are not accessible to the general public. So I really wanted to offer now the way Physionic is transformed mm-hmm. a way for people to go from the, the slogan is from the macro to the micro to to go from understanding kind of the pop science like the whole body how it affects the whole body down to the subcellular like if we were to, to trace let's say diabetes for example yeah. like okay everybody understands high blood sugar high insulin okay but why is that occurring yes and then like what tissues do we need to focus in on and then within the cells what's happening within the cells what molecules
0: mm. are changing mm-hmm. that's
1: causing the overall effect for the entire
0: body and and then what causes the, the changes of the molecules in the cell That's like the most interesting thing. And then if we say it's behavior, let's say just, and then we can Mm -hmm. specify what it is. But if we say it's behavior, then we ask what causes the change in behavior. And that's when it becomes really, really interesting. And that's by the way, where psychology maybe comes into play. And that's That's why I've been so interesting. That's why I've been so interested in psychology because I'm really interested in how to drive behavioral change. I think that's, Mm -hmm. if I am fascinated by lifestyle medicine and functional medicine, first and foremost, because I think you can do a lot of things by, you know, changing lifestyle and pursuing a healthy um, way of living. Um, yeah. But then the idea is, if you just tell someone to quit smoking, they won't do, like, shit, nothing. They won't no. def- the, the, the thing they definitely not do is stop smoking, quit smoking. So you have to approach it so- somewhat differently and more sophisticated. And then you have to understand why they started doing it in the first place. And that can be extremely difficult. And we are definitely not trained to do that at all. But that's like mm. a couple layers deeper. But I agree, yeah. I agree. You can go step by step and try to find the where the co- causal change begins and how this all interrelated. Because diff- many times you have all kinds of changes going on and they all play into the disease process.
1: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I think you bringing in psychology is an area that I've limited myself to not discuss. Like for mm-hmm. for physiologic, it's all about yeah. just the science. Sure, you can't you can't there's... do
0: everything. You know, I'll try to, no. but it doesn't work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's true. You can't do everything, and I think creating this box for myself of like, okay, I'm only going to discuss the science of the human body. Um, don't get me wrong, though. I, I that the psychology aspect is so incredibly interesting. To me, obviously, I even got a degree in it, but um, to the point that I I really love it when other people take that as their yes. uh, subject matter that they want to attack and and creating this community of people that are you know super science based and then also people that that have specialties in psychology mm-hmm. and sociology and philosophy. I think, which is you know which is a fantastic aspect about your podcast and mm-hmm. what you were talking about, you know Joe Rogan and and Lex Friedman and All those podcasts, because they do that. They they pull together all these different people.
0: They try to pull it all together. But hey, you brought up actually, you actually brought up diabetes, and I'm glad you did. And I know you're someone who who is, as you just explained, um, is just you know delineated. You're interested in following the disease process, going to the cellular level, molecular level, and so diabetes has been a very of, have has been of particular interest to me because I believe it's okay. it's underlying m- so many disease processes so tell me um, if you if you agree with it or not but as far as like uh, heart disease is concerned I think insulin resistance you can you can um, blame insulin resistance for having done most of the damage because insulin resistance leads to dyslipidemia leads to um, uh, you know Hyperglycemia leads to hypertension, leads to uh, fluid retention, maybe following that it leads to, um, you know, heart failure and all these kinds of things follow. Um, mm-hmm. So, and th- and that's obviously why I've been very interested in finding out what causes it and how we can ameliorate it. And it's it's just too complicated because first of all, you find a lot of contradicting information and then certain things don't make sense, don't really make complete sense to me. And if you you know you just brought up this topic, so I'd be really happy to talk to to talk uh, to you about sure. diabetes yeah. i've had, I've had a couple podcasts you know uh, discussing with people um, how it how it happens, uh, how insulin resistance develops. Um, so maybe we could just start. And you can help me out trying maybe get a better understanding of how this works. Um, Start from a bird's eye perspective and then go deeper. But if I would ask you the question, what causes insulin resistance? Or I don't actually like this question because it implies there's one cause. If we say, how does insulin resistance develops? What would you answer?
1: Yeah, that's... uh... It's certainly a broad question. Like you said, there's tons of literature out there on the topic, and many people disagree. Of course, mm-hmm. um, I think I think that so far what I've read has led me to this conclusion. Not that it can't change, but I, I have read quite a lot on diabetes and and uh, insulin resistance, yeah. and I would I would say that there are two primary kind of big picture, bird's eye view reasons why Mm -hmm. we become insulin resistant. And I could add a few other factors Mm -hmm. afterwards, Mm -hmm. but the first one is, uh, weight gain. So no doubt the majority of people that develop type two diabetes, uh, are overweight. And so it it goes hand in hand with obesity. Um, and the second thing is for, there are people that develop type two diabetes and aren't Visually overweight and you think exactly. Well, how how does that happen? And I think that's where body composition is a huge factor because a lot of people don't consider the fact that You can have this condition known as being skinny fat. Yeah, where you you look perfectly fine You look skinny, which is kind of the desirable goal for a lot of people, but their body composition is uh, so poor that their musculature isn't capable of intaking or sucking up the nutrients that they consume. So even if they're able to maintain their body weight, mm-hmm. they their their adiposity, their their fatness is located in extremely undesirable areas. So like the yeah. what's known as visceral fat. Mm-hmm. I, I know you you know all this stuff sure. for anybody listening. No, so um, far
0: it's been with you know exact accordance with what I um, have believed or the conclusion that I've have, have, uh, came to from from thinking about it but let let's let's talk about weight gain for a second because my relationship with weight gain with respect to diabetes i wouldn't say it has changed but i i would add some nuance and ask you run this by you and ask you what what you think about it because um okay where 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 would i start look there is this idea of the of the personal fat threshold right The idea is you fill your adipocytes, expand, uh, there is like hypertrophy going on until they're basically full and nothing else fits into these adipocytes. And then whatever happens afterwards is extremely bad for your health. But as long as you have space for these adipocytes to grow or to, you know, as long as hyperplasia maybe is even happening, nothing bad really happens. And so the idea is, I don't know if that's true or not, but the idea is the ability to become really obese is a protective factor for diabetes. And that's maybe one explanation for why uh, in the U.S. people can become like humongous. They can become enormous, you know, they can become extremely large. But then you have these areas like India, where most of those people are skinny fat. They have a lot of abdominal fat and they become insulin resistant, resistant really quick, really quickly. I think, isn't there like more diabetes in India than in the US? But the, Mm, I don't know, something like that. The stats were either they were really similar or there were even more diabetics in India, which is interesting given that not, definitely not 70% of Indians are overweight or obese, you know, so, so what what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, for those numbers, real quick, are, are those absolute numbers or relative? Because if they're absolute, then the answer is probably yes. There are because the absolute population in India is much higher than uh, in the United States. I but look it if up uh, if it's relative, yeah, yeah, if it's relative, then uh, that would be that would be incredibly intriguing because um, in that situation, I would certainly argue a lot more towards uh, the body composition changes, right? For yeah, for people that. Uh, and it's it's actually really remarkable. the it there's very little that you have to do to actually reverse a lot of these effects. I'm not saying uh, reverse diabetes completely, but like if you're on your way, let's say you're pre-diabetic, to reverse that pre-diabetes, even if you're skinny fat, hmm. it's really simple things. I mean, we're like obviously exercise, but it's it's not like we need mass amounts of exercise. It's like just a a small dose of exercise every other day or so is enough to massively reduce because because you're you're creating that sink and this is actually a video that i'm going to be releasing Mm -hmm. but um talking about creating a metabolic sink your Mm -hmm. your body your metabolism is a sink as in Mm -hmm. you consume nutrients they get digested absorbed into your bloodstream and then they get sucked up into they get sucked up into your cells mm-hmm. and then the cells oxidize them or or utilize those nutrients and liberate the energy and that, that's where we get metabolism mm-hmm. so if you can just supercharge that sink just a little bit more that means that any excess that you might have, that you might consume, gets sucked up into that sink. And it doesn't get, to your point, doesn't get absorbed into the adipocytes. Mm. But I I do think that for body composition, also the placement of the adipocytes is incredibly important. Because if you have adipocytes, these fat cells that are located in the visceral areas, those for some reason, there may be some some genetic factor that's... So maybe Mm -hmm. for one of the differences may be a genetic factor yeah. just a, as as a possibility that even though they don't gain overall weight mm. the the fat that does get stored doesn't get stored subcutaneously yeah. so under the skin but gets specifically deposited viscerally and that can cause significant effects because that mm-hmm. then increases inflammation that increases all kinds of other yeah. other issues and i can go into the mechanisms but like just generally that's that's what I would say is yeah. probably the
0: distinction. But then on visceral fat, because uh, I, I no one was really able to provide a, a cohesive answer uh, to the to, to these questions. Basically, on visceral fat, I was always curious about two things. First of all, what um, what determines the accumulation of visceral fat in co- uh, compared to subcutaneous fat? So, is there let's say something that you can eat or not eat or do or not do that um, makes it more likely that fat is going to be stored as visceral fat compared to uh, adipose tissue as subcutaneous fat sorry and then the next question is is there any like evolutionary explanation at all for why this thing like visceral fat exists and there i know there are theories but i I've no real. I've. I haven't really found an explanation for why the person would do this. Why are there these mechanisms in the human body that allow the for the accumulation of visceral fat? If it like. If it like destroys our health, if it, if it exacerbates insulin resistance, why is the body even capable of doing it? You know.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the if there are any nutrients that actually move. Uh, like let's say fat molecules more towards subcutaneous or visceral fat. I'm sure there are, as I think I was just, I was just reading a paper on melatonin actually Mm -hmm. um, that, that does have those kinds of effects where it reduces body fat and specific, more specifically towards visceral fat. Um, But a lot of this research is incredibly preliminary because we're still trying to determine, you know, what molecules do. And then we start to get into more of the, Uh, details of okay well is it affecting this type of fat versus this type of fat brown fat white fat Hmm. the white fat that's related to visceral fat compared to um subcutaneous fat so i think that the i think the reason why you've probably gotten some unsatisfactory answers is because the answer is i don't nobody knows like
0: yeah
1: we're, we're figuring it out but we don't actually know the the complete answer so I think year by year we're, we're getting closer and closer to those answers mm-hmm. the the second point though about why mm-hmm. why we actually accrue visceral fat if I had to give an argument I would say that it is because of location so fat visceral fat is around our organs and visceral fat also affects our musculature so uh, people that are uh, severely obese They'll develop lipid droplets within their mm-hmm. muscle cells. Mm-hmm. and my my way of thinking about it is similar to what you were explaining about this uh, fat threshold is mm-hmm. like their adipocytes are so full that the the fat has nowhere else to go so it starts getting deposited within the muscle cells mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so I, I, like I really think now. that location matters significantly for visceral fat as in like you're you're accumulating this fat, but instead of keeping it under your skin because you, I mean, Sure, there's there's capillaries and whatnot under your skin, but yeah. in terms of like actually having a fast access to different nutrients, I think that having that visceral fat there is a great deposit. Does it does it does it actually help your health? Obviously not. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those situations, your body's not thinking about like, well, is this the healthiest option? It's just it's just doing what it has to do. Yeah. To be the most efficient in any sort of situation and uh, so people throw out evolutionary ideas and whatnot and I, my answer every time for evolutionary ideas is like yeah that's possible that that's plausible but can i answer that i mean my degree my reading studies none of that is ever going to offer an a a, oh this is the reason exactly why we can just be we can just offer plausible explanations for for why yeah oftentimes we speculate right yeah we absolutely speculate because there's there's no experiment that we can do that that is then (laughs) going to at the end come out with this is the evolutionary reason why we do this Hmm. um we speculate and a lot of things make sense but um visceral fat I think I think a lot of it comes down to genetics for sure mm-hmm. and I think that maybe to your point of this discrepancy between uh, let's say in the United States people kind of become larger and larger yes um, but may not develop diabetes in in kind of small subsets mm-hmm. and but most people typically do develop Obviously. diabetes um, and in India not that I've weight they add a lot of visceral fat yeah. and that affects their insulin sensitivity and therefore uh they develop diabetes by the way i've looked
0: diabetes. i've looked up the the stats for a quick and the numbers okay. in, in america are more what would you say um research so there are clear numbers something around like 10 yeah. point something percent although i obviously believe that this is there's like gross under not reporting but yeah, um me too. not a, like the, the 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 thresholds for when we diagnose diabetes are pretty high and most doctors say oh hb1c 6.4 well you're almost there but you still don't have diabetes so this is not a good way of looking at this because obviously we both know diabetes is not a disease that you contract you know today it's something Mm -hmm. that you know develops over decades sometimes absolutely so it's it's not a it's not really a diagnosis it's like it's a Diabetes itself, it's its a pathophysiological process. It's always a process. So it's not like an infection where you're healthy and suddenly you're sick and you're infected and now, it, now it's gone. It's not like that at all. But people, we, we think about diabetes like that because we have these di- diagnostic criteria. But still, we have, th- we have this error everywhere. So roughly 10% in the US and something between 9 and 20. So they're obviously not clear numbers, apparently, in India. So... Okay. Something between nine and twenty implies that it might be similar to the S. Something around ten, but might also be higher. Mm. That's why I yeah. said um, it's striking that there is not as much obesity, but almost exactly the same number of diabetics, right. relatively speaking, or more. Yeah. Which or means, more, right. which means, obviously, weight gain drives insulin resistance. But with the idea with the personal fat threshold suggests that the ability to store more fat subcutaneously is protective not that yes. you it's not it's not protective in the same way as exercise is protective where as you exercise more it protects you more and more that's not the case for like gaining fat if you gain more fat you become more insulin resistant but mm-hmm. the the genetic predisposition to being able to store more fat subcutaneously or anything that allows you maybe there are certain environmental things that would be the next question is there something that we can do that can have an impact on how and where we store fat is, how is it, and
1: where we store fat
0: yes you know what i mean it's 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 it's, it's something akin to the question i posed to you in the, the the first of these two questions that i posed to you mm. is there something that regulates visceral fat uh, um acquisition and then Um, is there, is there, is there other behaviors that can have an impact on this personal fat threshold or is it just genetically predetermined and there's nothing we can do about it other than, you know, trying not to gain excessive amounts of weight?
1: I think, I think there are, it's, it's definitely not an area that I've done any reading in, uh, to any substantial degree. I mean, it's, it's an area that I've, I have one example in my mind, um, Mm -hmm where i'll just i mean i'll just be reading studies and they're they're not necessarily studies that i cover for physionics so um i don't go into as much depth i just kind of peripherally read them but one of the studies that i i ran across that did discuss something along those lines was the consumption of uh unsaturated fats so that that led to a change if i remember correctly that led to a change in the fat deposition. So when people gained weight, but they were consuming more unsaturated fats, they tended to uh, accumulate less in their visceral fat as opposed to their subcutaneous fat. Um, but beyond that, so so the answer is yes, there's probably things that you can do. My next question then, which I do not have the answer mm-hmm. to, is what's the effect size? So if, we, um, I if there is yeah. a shift is it like a 1% shift or can we actually really make a dramatic shift of like 30, 40, 50% or whatever it might be. And I think that there are certain nutrients that we consume that again, we're still trying to research mm-hmm. that uh, do have that impact, but I don't know them and maybe cutting edge researchers didn't know them that actually do that kind of research. They probably be able to offer better answers. Um, but I did want to mention one other mm-hmm. thing too is, your point about diabetes, not being something that quickly happens. It's Mm. not like you just wake up one day or you go to the doctor and you just, Oh, whoa, where'd that come from? You have diabetes. (laughs) Um, yes. In the United States, there's this, this, a huge problem, which I would definitely encourage people to to pay attention to is if they go to their doctor, let's say, let's say somebody goes to the doctor every year, they get a checkup and their doctor, you know, their blood sugar is in the normal range. Um, the problem with that which i think is an excellent point from from you is that the problem is it doesn't look at the other side of the equation it never like the, when you get your metabolic panel done they don't tell you your insulin levels yes they just tell you your blood sugar levels so yes. the, it, it's on you as the the customer or the patient even if you feel like everything's fine i mean reasonably like if you work out and and you eat a relatively normal diet then Mm -hmm. you probably don't need to worry about it but if your blood sugar levels are normal and you're overweight for example even if it's slightly overweight or you just don't exercise um you should every once in a while get an added panel done for your insulin levels because it's highly possible that your insulin levels will be raised and your blood sugar levels will be normal And that's because your body is fighting to keep those blood sugar levels normal yeah so your doctor is not seeing it for years because Mm -hmm. they're not checking for that that insulin
0: that's an excellent that's such an excellent point Uh, before before you go over to your next one just want to make a quick comment interestingly enough like i did that for my parents insulin panel and doctors like they have no idea they ask why why do you want to have why the hell do you want to have an insulin checked like you don't need that we have your hba one c and this and that and all fine or it's not fine, but um, the the point is, for people to understand, because we mentioned that diabetes develops slowly, incrementally over time, worsens over time, it's like something drives insulin resistance, we're yet to figure out what exactly that is, but then, as soon as your body starts becoming insulin resistant, then it's a curve, then your cells become more insulin resistant, then at some point your liver becomes more insulin resistant, or first deliver whatever, that's, that's all um, also up to um, examination. Mm-hmm. But then the body fights back because the body obviously tries to keep the blood sugar levels low. It's obviously detrimental to your health. It's harmful to have high blood sugar levels of all, all the time. We see all the complications from diabetes. And so the body compensates by increasing insulin levels. And um, increasing them to the point where blood sugar levels still remain normal or low, and then at some point, that's the theory. Uh, pancreatic beta cells they just have no, not the capacity anymore to produce that high amount of insulin. Then it starts dropping, glucose starts rising, the liver you know starts producing even more glucose paradoxically enough, and um, and and that's why I believe it's a great idea to measure fasting insulin. And I wonder why this is never being told. Like in my two and a half, is it two and a half, roughly two years, I'm third year now in medical school, I've never been mentioned uh, fasting insulin even once. Like we talked about HbA1c all the time and all the oral glucose tolerance tests and all these things, but not the fact that it's valuable to figure out where your insulin levels are. Because it gives you an idea of, of how much your body has to fight, quote-unquote, to keep your blood sugar yeah. levels low.
1: That's that's such a perfect illustration. Yeah, you nailed it. It's, it's not like if you look at your glucose levels, you're getting a measure a snapshot right then and there If you look at your hba1c you're looking at a snapshot over three months but that's still telling you about glycation level it's telling Mm. you about the glycation of the red blood cells Mm. it's not but it's not none of that is telling you about on the back end what your pancreas is suffering through (laughs) your 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 pancreas is screaming and you just have these headphones on while you're facing one one direction and the pancreas is behind you it's like like you you're only looking you're only focusing on these these factors that are downstream way downstream Hmm. and uh, yeah i mean i completely agree with you looking at insulin is i think looking at insulin is just as important as looking at blood sugar Hmm. and it tells you way sooner if you're on your way to to becoming insulin like really insulin resistant where you can't reverse it so i i mean i'm i I can't explain i don't know why it it happens that way um that's just that's just the way it is at the moment, which is why I would encourage people to absolutely go, like, pay for that extra test yes. for the insulin test. Absolutely. Yeah. Good point.
0: Um, you wanted to make a second point. Yeah, just real I
1: quick. I recall, about, yeah. Um, the, the only situation where I've encountered <clears throat> where diabetes just kind of strikes out of nowhere mm-hmm. is type 1 diabetes. Sure. And related to a viral infection. There's this Oh, weird yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah where where sometimes people will get a viral infection and then that virus specifically attacks or or i guess it affects their entire body but then their immune cells specifically become auto uh have this autoimmune reaction Mm -hmm. where they attack the beta cells and destroy the pancreas but like Mm -hmm. but in terms of like type 2 which is the one that we're talking about I've never heard of anybody just waking up one day and just course, having diabetes. Of course, of course. No, Obviously,
0: we, we talk about type 2 diabetes now, and almost exclusively it's a chronic condition where people develop it over right. time. Then you have type 1, which is autoimmune. You have this weird pancreatitis diabetes that can happen after yeah, sleep yeah, pancreatitis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is not really related to, well, obviously your pancreatitis mm-hmm. might be related to your lifestyle, but this can mm-hmm. also happen really quickly. Um, but th- for the vast majority of people, for most mm. cases of diabetes it's a chronic condition where people have done something over the over their lives that has led uh, to the development of that even if we accept the idea that there might be genetic predisposition it's like the idea of genetics loading the gun but then you know it's a you know cliche quote genetics load the gun and then lifestyle pulls the trigger but i mean it's it's really true and it's also relieving because it means yes you can have a genetic propensity for all kinds of things Mm -hmm. you might be genetically predisposed to developing alzheimer's and this and that and we all probably have something but then you 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 have you have it in you have the power to 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 stay healthy to make sure that you don't pull the trigger that's the that's the necessary thing to make this disease manifest itself itself so that's yeah. I think also a very important message to for people to keep in mind. So even if diabetes like runs in my family and stuff like yeah. that, it's like good, you know, make a note, it runs in my family, maybe I have a genetic predisposition and now I have to take action to it's my my responsibility is not to suffer away, you know, to 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 um to like just Dispense with the necessity to do anything by just claiming that oh it's just all genetics. Your responsibility is now to take action and make sure that the problem doesn't manifest itself because you do have the power to do it.
1: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's again great point. I, I completely agree. Mm. I think. Uh, I think in that situation, let's say if a person has a predisposition, a genetic predisposition to diabetes. Mm. I mean, from my reading so far, I, I just. I really. I really think that a person should be on a diet, uh, this is just my opinion, but should be on a diet that's lower in carbohydrates. It doesn't have to be keto. It doesn't have to be like very low carbohydrate or anything, Mm -hmm. but just a little bit lower on carbohydrates and then replace that with not saturated fats, but replace that with unsaturated fats because you're doing two things. You're, 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 actively directly reducing blood sugar levels because you're reducing your carbohydrates, Yeah. which I'm not saying that if you consume large amounts of carbohydrates that you're going to develop diabetes. Um, But if you have a predisposition and you're afraid of overtaxing your pancreas, you can help your pancreas. You can just reduce your carbohydrate load. And then if you Mm -hmm. consume more polyunsaturated fats specifically, but unsaturated in general, um, then you'll reduce your insulin release as well so i mean you have two oh tell me there that wait are, tell, tell me about this you.
0: tell me about this tell me about the idea with fats polyunsaturated versus saturated because that's also a huge topic of confusion for me at least because i follow many people from the animal-based community and i follow a bunch of people mm-hmm. who are who are uh, like more plant-based i try to expose myself to everything as you know yeah, but right. then you do you have this notion from the Animal based people because they have to defend their animal foods that are higher in saturated fat. And I'm, as you know, I'm a big yeah. fan of animal foods. I think they're great. But then they say, oh, it's poofas, you know, it's seed oils, it's this and that. I don't, I, I, I definitely think that consuming seed oils or oils in great amounts isn't necessarily something that's like truly beneficial for your health. But then you have the other mm-hmm. side that says, oh, saturated fat is completely evil and it's causing disease and this and that. So please, can you, can you, can you tell can you tell me tell us what you think about that you just mentioned this interesting idea that what saturated fat increases insulin but polyunsaturated fat doesn't because i haven't i haven't heard that anywhere so far
1: well not exactly i, I wouldn't jump i wouldn't jump to that level but i do think mm-hmm. from the evidence that i've seen that saturated fat does affect the pancreas ne- more negatively I guess I'll just say negatively, okay. as opposed to unsaturated fats, which, which tend to have generally positive results throughout the body. I mean, regardless, I'm not I'm not going to speak on seed oils because I haven't even looked at that, but I okay. do know there's an extremely vocal group of people that strongly feel seed oils are the worst thing in the world. I don't know. Like, well, the, they, the they answers, say
0: it's the most, and to give the devil its due, you know, to give them their due. It's like Uh what has changed, proportionally speaking, relatively speaking, the most over the past hundred years is maybe seed oil consumptions, because literally they didn't exist at some point because we manufacture them. And suddenly, like, we used them everywhere. And then we have this correlation with disease. So it's like, yes, there's this great correlation, makes perfect sense. And then there have a bunch of mechanistic rodent studies, which they use to support their argument. And I mean... Then they, the conclusion they jump to is, well, it's the most important it's the cause of all diseases. And I'm like, I don't yeah. know. I personally position myself as someone who believes that seedles aren't necessarily healthy. I'm not a fan of them, but my I wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that they're the cause that cause all diseases. But and and you know, many people make the arguments and pretty strong arguments, and also there's a lot of data to support that, that polyantries Polyunsaturated fatty acids seem to be beneficial to the human body compared to um, saturated fats, which have been yeah. um, uh, uh, which have been yeah attacked, villainized for a long period of time, and um, maybe um, correctly, maybe incorrectly. We, could, we can talk about that.
1: Yeah. So the the strata of how I see things. This is mm-hmm. based. So this is something that I've I've read. A, a crap load of literature okay saturated fat versus unsaturated fats in relation to insulin resistance um i think i've read well over a hundred studies on this topic oh, wow. and i it it, it it follows this exact paradigm of carp if you take saturated fats and you replace them with carbohydrates there's there will be no added benefit or no mm-hmm. negative effect it's they're essentially equivalent in terms of their mm-hmm. overall effect on your body um from an insulin resistance stand carbohydrates but just in general if you were to replace it one for one uh, calorically speaking then you would see no net benefit to your health However, if you replace saturated fats with monounsaturated fat, there's a slight benefit to your health, and, and uh, that's that's really pretty universal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then if you switch saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat, I mean, it's it's like night and day. I mean, the, the, wow. the massive, massive differences in overall improvement in every single measure that you can look at for insulin resistance. So uh, polyunsaturated fats are by far the best. Hmm. Um, the type of polyunsaturated fat, I mean, that's where you could get maybe some debate. I yeah. don't know, but generally focusing on those polyunsaturated fats is, is, is going to be the best bet. And you see that across diets too. Like if you look at a Mediterranean diet yeah. or even I, I looked at ketogenic diets where they use primarily polyunsaturated fats or unsaturated fats in total versus saturated fats, saturated fats, increase cholesterol. They increased, uh, they, they had. Worse effects overall, like, quote-unquote, worse effects, unless you believe that cholesterol isn't a, it, it isn't an issue. And then unsaturated fats decreased cholesterol and decreased triglycerides and had all these uh, positive effects. So I think that there's a lot of nuance, but I think generally, so far, I would say that polyunsaturated fats are your best bet for overall health.
0: Do you think there is... Um there is a limit to that. Like, obviously there is. It's like, it's with everything, right? Yeah. If you consume too much, then you yeah. run into problems. Because I believe, I can't see how there will not be an, let's say, let's let's call it oxidation issue at some point, if you consume a lot of um, polyunsaturated fats. Also, and we talked about like evol- evolutionary explanation and stuff, but also mm. given the fact that omega-6 and omega-3s are essential And that's like a little paradigm shift, like my theory, I I, I won't run it by you because I haven't heard other people talk about it, but I came up with that and I've shared it with some people and I I personally find it interesting. Tell me what you think about this. Uh, We we call certain nutrients essential and certain nutrients we call not essential. And essential means the body can't produce in sufficient amounts. Essential means the body has the ability, the machinery to produce this nutrient in essential amounts. And we do, consume, we do also consume not-essential nutrients um, through diet, but we, we could, technically speaking, we could make all the nutrients, all the not-essential nutrients we need in sufficient amounts. And then it, it's, it sounds as if essential means important and not-essential means not important. And my idea was, it's like, for me, it's the reverse. Not-essential means we can synthesize it, means it's so unbelievably important that we can't rely on exogenous sources we can't we can't uh, what would you say we can't survive a second without it we can't survive a day without it if there was a period where we didn't ingest food we would die without having consumed this not essential you know nutrient that's why the body has developed the ability to synthesize it and then Mm, and then the idea with with essential nutrients is either it's not as crucially important or we need it in smaller amounts, like the amounts we don't need is in humongous amounts because we did have periods where we didn't consume this one food or uh, where we didn't eat consume food at all. Um, or it means too much of this nutrient would be harmful for our bodies. And, and an example could be, um, an example could be, Take like omega six for example, or even omega threes. Ob- mm-hmm. Probably if you increase the amount by a lot, at some point you would run into problems. And yeah. maybe a devil's advocate argument could be something like um uh you it 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 is an essential nutrient because maybe we 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 were surrounded by foods that contained a lot of omega-3s and omega-6s all the time. So the body didn't really have to develop the machinery to synthesize it because we had enough foods to consume omega-3s and omega-6s. That's another um, uh, theory. Mm-hmm. That's another possible explanation. But then if we we had the ability to synthesize this, and on top of it we consumed so much omega-6s and omega-3s through our diets, it would have led to worse I don't know health and longevity and whatever, which mm-hmm. ultimately has led to this idea the the the, the uh, physiology which doesn't allow us to synthesize certain nutrients and does allow us to certain uh, to synthesize others. So that's a long way of asking: um, Do you think there is certain harm that is associated with polyunsaturated? Um, something like this?
1: <laughs> yeah. So. Obviously, the, the evolutionary aspect is just, a, to me, is is something that I find fascinating, but I can't give you like, yes, you're right, uh, yes. because of my professional opinion. It's not, I just, <laughs> I don't know. The answer is I don't know. But I, I love the thought process, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's absolutely possible, certainly. Mm. Uh, maybe an evolutionary biologist could tell you a lot more on that topic. Mm. But, um, but to the overarching question of like, can too much of polyunsaturated fats especially if you start breaking it down to like omega-6 and uh and omega-3s yeah absolutely yeah. of course um if you if you overconsume, i mean i think my my overall mantra is if you're over consuming on anything you're doing your health a disservice it's mm. i mean but the range at which you you, you can still consume a particular food is extremely variable. It's not Definitely, like yeah. you have to be 11 to 12%. And if you're anything outside of that, then you're… Below above. or above,
0: then you're dead, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Right. But I mean, to your point with like omega-6s, the ratio between omega-6s and omega-3s is another thing that people have talked about. And that's certainly a possibility as well. But overall, if we were just take a step back from polyunsaturated fats, yeah, I, I think that if you… If you overconsume polyunsaturated fats in general like included with overconsumption of your entire diet where you're starting to gain weight you are going to see worse health effects no matter what hmm. um, so there is nuance always sure. uh, but if you were to if you were to clamp your nutrition and decrease your saturated fat a little bit and increase hmm. your polyunsaturated fat I think you'd only see positive I effects see. Hmm. but that said, like you also mentioned that a lot of people eat meat and whatnot. I eat meat. I eat saturated fat. I, I have zero <laughs> How dare problems you? with that. Like I'm, 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 I'm telling you, yeah, you should probably eat your polyunsaturated fats. But I'm the biggest hypocrite because I don't like. Don't don't get me wrong. I do eat polyunsaturated fats, <laughs> but it's not like I, I, I don't pretend to be this like holy person. <laughs> but look, look, when like, you um, say
0: when you say consume a little more sa- polyunsaturated than saturated, it doesn't mean. Don't consume any saturated fat at all, right. and f- and exactly. like consume ninety percent of your calories from pufas. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that. Like the nuance is lost when you say pufas are good, saturated fats are bad. It means right. exactly. it means make sure not to binge on saturated fat, but um, make sure to include certain foods that are higher in pufa. It's not a black or white issue, right? Yeah. Right. It's
1: it's as simple as that. And all that to say is it's like we're talking about a balanced diet, like shockingly, like all of what we're talking about is just having a balanced diet, which is which is what people don't want to hear. They want to hear. I got to eat saturated fats because they're easy to consume and 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 they're they're fun to consume and i want to eat 80 percent saturated fats i mean if you do that fine but you're you're (laughs) gonna be worse off for it i think yeah um but yeah eating a little bit of saturated fat is perfectly fine yeah within
0: i mean moderation it's 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 not a it's not a big deal also as far as like saturated fat is concerned i think a nuance that also gets lost is when you well actually if you become too granular if you if you if you start talking about you know the specific fatty acids we say talking more oh, to, yeah. you you forget the pic, the the bigger picture that we actually talking about foods you don't like eat saturated fats right you you the mm-hmm. you, you composition of different nutrients in certain food groups and foods and if we that that's why i'm a bigger proponent of saying these are the foods that are beneficial, and these are the foods that you you should exclude because then more or less automatically you end up with something that resembles a more balanced approach. And right, um, yeah, and and that, and because because if you say well eat th- that's the that's the danger I see with saying when people say saturated fat is dangerous. I'm not saying that you said that, but it, that that's this radical black and sure. white approach, right? Puffers right. are really good, saturated fat is really bad, or vice versa. Like the same argument can be made for the other side. Although I believe mm. because the other side is more mainstream, I'm not as worried about, worried about that. Um, why I'm more worried about the messaging regarding saturated fat being villainized so much is because people associate saturated fat with animal products. And I believe there, there are a very mm. valuable contribution to, uh, to um, your diet from a nutrient perspective first yep. and foremost, mm-hmm. and from a protein perspective. And so if you say, right. oh, I avoid saturated fat, I stop eating eggs and meat and fish, well, not fish, but eggs and meat and maybe dairy, then I think that will do more harm than the exclusion of saturated fat on the long run. So that's why I believe this nuanced approach is important, that you say, have 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 your animal foods, have your saturated fat, but make sure to have your PUFAs as well. Make sure right. to include like, plant foods that can provide you with the necessary monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fatty acids because they're more beneficial to your health, let's say.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean I, I have nothing to add. That's, <laughs> that's completely true. Yeah.
0: Well look, there's like ten more topics that I'd like to discuss with you. Um I'd like to talk <laughs> to talk to you about um to talk to you about um heart disease. I'd like to talk to you about protein. But um as we talked about visceral fat i just want what to circle back to to mm-hmm. this um, sure. idea real quick and then we we could start to wrap up sure. uh, i want to run by you an idea that i've heard it, the only time i've heard this theory was from chris masterjohn he's he's a nutritional scientist I know him. you know you know him. i i I, mm. I really like him he's he's doing great great stuff he's very um, I would say meticulous about um, the way he looks at studies and he is, um, I find his approach very reasonable. He's not dogmatic about certain things. Um, And his idea on fatty liver is what I found very interesting. Like we talked about visceral fat and um, fatty liver isn't, it's like a little different in the sense that it accumulates right inside the liver and if we classically mm-hmm. think about, sat, um, not saturated, visceral fat, it, it's around the organs, right? But like fatty liver, yeah. it's when the liver itself is infiltrated with mm-hmm. fat lipid droplets. But it's, it's also something that drives the problem and con- contributes to insulin resistance. And so if we think of uh, fatty liver, then it's basically an equation of fat influx. Um, what was it? It was fat influx. Triglyceride synthesis within the liver and fat efflux. And mm-hmm. what can drive fatty liver is one, it's one of these things or altogether. So you can have more influx, less efflux, or more synthesis. And what Chris Massageon proposed is that one crucial nutrient that um, heavily influences e- the efflux side of the equation is choline. And the explanation is this is when you have a choline deficiency, you do, don't consume enough choline, then you cannot uh, build the VLDLs properly because it's part of the phospholipid bilayer as in mm. phosphatidylcholine, let's say. So you no. need this component to, to to manufacture these VLDLs to you know ship out triglycerides. And so if you don't have this, then this can exacerbate lipid accumulation in the liver. And I've heard that. and I found That's... that very interesting. Obviously, yeah. this supports my bias towards animal foods. Because, like, <laughs> meat and eggs and liver have a bunch of choline. But, so I like this theory. But I also want to know from you if this sounds plausible, if there's evidence to back it up. With, um, I think, Chris Masterjohn supported it by mentioning, oh, how is it called? Where you intravenously in- infuse nutrients to people if they're not able to consume the parental no right, it's yeah, different yeah. but you know what i'm talking about right and they yeah, some, some somehow they weren't feeding them choline because it was considered a non not essential nutrient and they developed mm. like fatty liver or symptoms of fatty liver or evidence for fatty okay. liver and so that's how they kind of figured out that it's an essential nutrient and now it's not it's not the case here in germany we still we still we say it's a it's a semi essential nutrient because we are able yeah. to synthesize it, but not in sufficient amounts. Um, mm. But yeah, so that's, that's the idea. And so tell me what you think.
1: Yeah. So I suppose that in that experiment that they kind of thought of it, uh, I guess there are certain nutrients that are considered conditionally essential. So yeah. they're, they're essential only in particular situations where need may increase substantially. It sounds like maybe choline may be one of those uh admittedly i've not looked at choline research at all so it's something that i would need to look into but in terms of the transportation system that he offers of you know like vldl right like you have these vldl vehicles that get exocytosed so they get released from the hepatocytes the liver cells and then those as they get delivered to or as they move through the bloodstream they slowly get transformed into like intermediate density lipoproteins and then uh, low density lipoproteins and they continue to 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 escalate as they change uh, throughout their cascade, as they interact and deposit fats and deposit cholesterol and whatnot to the different tissues. And then those tissues eventually kick those back as HDL back to the liver. So you have this continuous exchange and it's true, right? Like at least I can say that without having looked at the literature, so I'm not talking about it as an expert, I'm just talking about from the physiological standpoint. It does make sense that if you have an influx of these fats, one, that they may be coming from the tissues if they're over, if there's an overabundant level of fat in the -hmm. the surrounding tissue. So let's say you're talking about an overweight person. Yes. Um, So their efflux is going to, or as in their, I suppose I should say the influx, let's look at it from a liver perspective. Mm -hmm. The influx into the liver will be Mm -hmm. substantial from the peripheral tissues. Then Mm -hmm. on top of that, you have their nutrition, which is also, you've got the portal vein, which is Offering nutrients straight to the liver, which is depositing Absolutely. a bunch of nutrients yep. as well. So you've got two different inputs of 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 this in uh, influx. And,
0: and so master, you, Chris Masterjohn actually mentioned something that low-carbohydrate people don't like to think to 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 see or to hear is that basically what also in, uh, increases influx. fat into the liver is actually like dietary fat. He was like, it's dietary fat. So more (laughs) influx by more dietary fat, but obviously it doesn't mean that dietary fat leads to liver fat accumulation. It means you have more influx. You also have more efflux, but then the idea is if you don't have the necessary components that are required for proper sufficient efflux, then you might wind up with problems.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I mean, you characterized it mm-hmm. correctly, like it's a balance between mm-hmm. those two. I think what low carbers also uh, forget is that they think, okay, well, if I consume large amounts of fat, then I'm also going to be burning more fat. It's It's the exact same principle. If your cells are exposed to only fat or largely fat, they switch. Their metabolism switches yes. to fat burning. But yes. the problem is you're also consuming so much fat. So you're storing a ton of fat, but you're also releasing a bunch of fat. You're burning a lot of fat. Everything is fat-centric. Your body switches to being extremely fat-centric. Yeah, it sounds like the same deal with the liver. Your mm. liver has to compensate. It can't. It's not like you can. You m- have this massive shift in your, in your nutrient profile and what you consume, and your body just goes ho hum. We're just going to keep going and do do the same thing that we always do. They it, it just it has to has it has to have these huge physiological shifts in metabolism in its efflux and its transport and all these different things have to change Hmm. to accommodate this sudden shift in in your nutrient profile Mm -hmm. so Mm
0: -hmm. disease whatsoever sorry i lost you for a second what was the last sentence
1: Oh, I said it wouldn't surprise me at all with uh, with your description of fatty liver disease, yeah. if if it follows that kind of general idea of efflux and influx, yeah. and what uh, Chris has been talking about as well with this introduction of dietary fat, how that affects the process as well.
0: Right, right. But but it's like with the with regards to choline, why I found this to be a very interesting piece is because. That might explain why some people are more likely to develop fatty liver compared to others, because like mm. maybe mm-hmm. they have a, a genetic predisposition that requires them to consume more dietary choline, because it's there. Seems to be a lot of variability, intra-individual yeah. uh, vir- vari- variability, um, according to Chris Masterjohn. Um, yeah. I'm just going to quote him here, um, and what what I find very interesting about it, because that means you have not only the standard approaches to treating fatty liver disease that we all know, it's like lose weight, do this, move more, blah, blah. That's all good. People have trouble implementing this properly. And um, also it doesn't like always seem to work 100%. And maybe there is an argument to be made that consuming more of these nutrients that are required for this metabolism, lipid metabolism in the liver, if it's Mm. like straight out, choline or precursors necessary to synthesize choline whatever maybe there are more nutrients like choline isn't obviously the only thing that's necessary to to um, build vldls there's like more that we need to to do that to accomplish that and so maybe i think that's why it's important to stress not just calorie and weight loss but also the dietary quality because that's ultimately what determines whether you receive sufficient nutrients or not
1: absolutely yeah yeah i think i think my hierarchy of things is are you over consuming yeah that's the first thing you should look at then the next thing is start to look at your macronutrients so just general macronutrients carbs fats proteins that's it um and then then you you may want to look at the structure of those macronutrients look at polyunsaturated fats versus saturated i mean don't harp on just just look at the general trend of what you're consuming and then and i'm not saying it's any less important it's just like that's just the the strategy of how i look at it then the last thing which is just as important is looking at those minerals looking at those micronutrients yeah. and making sure that you especially for your condition you know are you sedentary are you really active if you're really active there's reasons why there're multivitamins that are that have different formulations of micronutrients because you do need added micronutrients in certain <laughs> situations and less mm-hmm. in other situations so Yeah, absolutely. Like if choline is something that people are missing, then maybe it does have a Mm. dramatic effect on fatty liver disease.
0: Yeah, that'll be be interesting. As far as I know, there's not that much studies or any of that done in actually like human beings with Mm. respect to choline and fatty liver disease. I've actually looked into the literature and there are some reviews, like not reviews, but some literature suggesting the relationship Uh between choline and liver health. And so there is the link. And if you Google like choline fatty liver, there will be these physiological explanations. But I've never come across a study that had a randomized controlled trial. One group received choline, one didn't. And let's see, like that would be a simple way to find out if it actually helps or not. So I hope maybe something like that will will happen in the future. And then we can have better like um, answers to, to, to these questions.
1: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Absolutely. Nick, any final remarks? (laughs) I know, I know, Um, like there's ten more topics that we could dive into and I'll like (laughs) we'll definitely talk again. Like there's so much yeah. And it was it was it was so fun for me to talk with you because we can we can get technical, I can we can throw around terms, I can ask all the questions I want and uh, we're both open-minded to uh, like to discuss the topics we're not dogmatic about something so that's why right. I, I really enjoyed the discussion today
1: yeah likewise uh absolutely yeah it was it was an honor and uh i think i think the the last thing i would say is just uh i guess kind of three takeaways mm-hmm. that i would say because i asked you what um you think are kind of foundational aspects of health yeah. and i think for me i have three three that i I think about one is uh keeping your weight in check so that means if you're underweight try to gain weight if you are overweight try to lose weight and i'm not talking about massive amounts like five percent makes dramatic differences on your overall health across every metric known so weight is such a huge one the second one is exercise just exercise i think the the acsm recommendations yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it is The ACSM recommendations, the American College of Sports Medicine, who I used to be accredited through, they recommend it's really small amounts, like 10 minute bouts, 10 minutes. It can lead to substantial improvement in your health. Not like you'll become a bodybuilder or anything, but in terms of your health, you'll see some improvement in your health. So and there's also this exercise. psychological
0: effect, right? If you if you start Absolutely. with with yep. a small amount, the likely the probability that you just auto that you just spontaneously exercise for longer than 10 minutes is way higher. It's like like oh, when you say, uh, "Oh, I'm going to read 20 pages today," mm. you know, mm-hmm. chances that you will do the that are not that high. If you say, "I I will read two pages," after two pages, you like. Mm-hmm. Why not reading a I third one, more. a fourth one, a yeah. fifth one, and then you end up with 10, you <laughs> right. know, and then you do yeah, half of, the, of your previous aim. So, again, it's, it's a really valuable tip.
1: Yeah, it's all about activation energy, just getting over that hump to get started and then you get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. And uh, the third one is focus on your sleep, making you, you sure that you're in a routine and you're getting a sufficient wow. sleep yeah. every night. That's i mean they're so basic I, i'm not groundbreaking anything but no i think those those lead to those lead to such substantial changes in your health that uh regardless of anything else that you do those are are pillars so yeah, yeah and thanks for having me on i i absolutely had a blast i love the the beginning of just kind of philosoph- philosophical discussions yes. of of you know yeah. how people and psychological discussions of how people discuss, mm-hmm. and then uh, and debate and then uh, getting into to more of the science. It was a lot of fun, and I, I'd love to do it again. Absolutely,
0: same. It was a lot of fun, and interestingly enough, like that's that's pretty much the structure that most of my podcasts follow. So even if I, yeah. if, if even if I <laughs> if I set this up to talk about science, like I had um, Dr. Tommy Wood on my podcast. He's a neuroscientist. Mm. He's an MD, PhD, and I wanted to talk to him about brain health, and like eventually we did, but. Yeah. F- f- the first half, we discussed like also philosophical I- philosophical ideas, how do we approach mm-hmm. patient treatment, about the placebo effect, and like more general I- general terms. And then yeah. I'm like, okay, let's you know make a break and talk about brain <laughs> health because that's actually why yeah. I wanted to have you on. But it's interesting it's interesting though, because then you realize you have an actual human being in front of you. Not like a, a mm. robot that just knows a bunch of information about science. you know you're a, you're a human being. you have experienced a yeah. lot of things. You're, you have thoughts on other topics other than science. So it's like mm. always interesting to chat about those.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what makes your podcast unique.
0: Well, thank you. thank you. I really I really appreciate your support and encouragement.
1: Yeah, of course.